Welcome to Inside Maine. I'm Angus King. And today, not surprisingly, we're going to be talking about the coronavirus with two individuals that know a lot about disease and disease transmission and have been directly involved in recommendations and studies involved in this virus pandemic. The first is Nirav Shah, who is the director of the Center for Disease Control in Maine, in Augusta, who's been working closely with Governor Mills on the state's response. The other is uh, Aaron Bromage, who is an immunologist at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. And I'd like to start with Dr. Shaw, if you would. Uh, I guess the first question is, how are we doing in Maine? It seems like we're still having cases, uh, fewer deaths. How would you assess uh, the state of the pandemic in Maine right now? Well, thank you so much, Senator King, for, for having me on the program this afternoon. Really delighted to join everyone, and I look forward to the conversation. I'll, I'll answer your question both in absolute terms and in relative terms. In absolute terms, there are now, now over 1,700 cases of COVID-19 that have been diagnosed across the state. Um, sadly, we've had now over 70 individuals who have passed. We just recorded our 71st passing today. Um, on, the other on the other side, however, we've had well over 1,000 individuals who have recovered from the disease as well. Uh, our case numbers stand somewhat in contrast to those of some of our neighbors. Uh, New Hampshire, for example, which has approximately the same number of people as Maine, has had twice as many cases as we have here. And Vermont, which has about half the number of people as Maine, has had about the same number of overall cases. Uh, so in that respect, we've, we, it appears that we've been spared. At the same time, we are seeing an uptick in the number of cases, particularly in the number of outbreaks at both processing plants, like meat processing plants, as well as with long-term care facilities, both of which we are extremely concerned about. And that's really where we're targeting a lot of our efforts right now. Well, the big question, though, uh, on a lot of people's minds in Maine, I'm sure, and then probably in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, is what about the summer? What about tourism? And uh, what's the risk of uh, people coming into Maine in the summer, which millions do, uh, becoming uh, vectors for the disease and turning Maine from one of the uh, states that's doing rather well to uh, a, a problem? Uh, how, do we, how do we confront that issue? I'll start, and then would love would love other perspectives. Um, you know, this is something we talk about every single day: is is how to balance the the relative low number of cases with the the reality that tourism is a vital piece of the state's overall economy. Balancing those two those two, candidly, is probably one of the the, the hardest tightrope acts that I think any governor, any administration could probably have to balance. Uh, I, I think it really does involve a couple of things, at least from a public health perspective. I can't speak to the economic development side, but from a public health perspective, the two things that we're focused on are having a greatly expanded capacity to provide testing, as well as an, a greatly expanded workforce of individuals who can undertake these so-called contact tracing to figure out who may have been infected and get them in safe isolation so that they don't end up passing the disease to anyone else. Those, to us, are two necessary preconditions as we think about moving into the summer. Well, Dr. Brown, what's your view? I guess let me back up. You had a, a wonderful article that I've forwarded to a number of people about how this thing actually transmits. Can you give us some, some uh, a nutshell of, of 
what the risks are, how, how risky it is to go to the grocery <laughs> store, for example, versus uh, going to an athletic event. Right, so this virus um, doesn't walk. Uh, it relies on us for its means to get around, uh, and it relies on our interactions with people in order to find a new body to get into and keep moving along. Um, so when we're looking at general risks, the risks come down to uh, any environment that has lots of people in close contact, uh, in close spaces, um, that can lead to those interactions where the virus can jump from one person to another. Um, so when you look at this, outdoor activities uh, have lower risk, especially when you're looking at places where you can adequately socially distance, maintain your six feet, um, pass by someone easily. But when you get into closer contact situations, uh, grocery stores are a little bit more, but the risk is not overly high because you don't spend a long time. And we're putting guidelines in place that doesn't have or allow as many people to come into those grocery stores. But when how about, start how about masks? Sorry? Yeah, how masks, about masks? Have, masks have a really important piece in this puzzle. They're not the way to solve the issue completely, but a lot of little measures that we take, reduce interactions, um, stay away from enclosed spaces as much as you can, but also wearing masks, take little chunks out of the armor of the virus. Um, and if that lowers the transmittability, they're all good things to stop the spread of disease. So masks are important, especially when you are in situations where you're going to have interactions with people. Well, my understanding is that you're really wearing a mask more to protect other people than, than yourself. That the, that's the, the function of the mask is to keep you from projecting. Right, uh, if everyone wore a mask, you drop down emissions in the environment, wherever you are, inside, outside. And so your behavior helps other people from becoming sick. And so it's sort of a, a social conscience, it's a buy-in that my behavior is not directly helping me, but it's directly helping the rest of the community in stopping the spread of disease. Dr. Um, Shaw, is, yeah. is masks part of the strategy in Maine? Is it part of the, the, uh, the governor's uh, orders or where do, where do we stand with masks in Maine? Particularly it, it, is, it is, Senator, and uh, Governor Mills' latest executive order she did require the utilization of, of cloth face coverings. And I wanna get back to that distinction in a moment, but face coverings, when individuals are in public places where social distancing, physical distancing is not possible. Uh, I, I wanna just draw two quick distinctions to build on what Dr. Bromage mentioned. When we talk about face coverings and masks, we really are referring to a piece, a piece of cloth that's put on the face. Uh, that can prevent somebody from transmitting the virus, what's referred to as source control. We, when we talk about masks, the surgical masks that you see healthcare providers wear, let alone the N95 masks that require special testing, we still view those as really being uh, reserved for healthcare providers because there is still something of a premium on them. But the essence of what we think the mask, the face covering really, is able to do is to lower the risk of one person potentially transmitting it to another person. And what Governor Mills' executive order really specified is that where social distancing is not possible, wearing that face covering is, as Dr. Bromage mentioned, part of the multi-layered approach that we're taking with the virus overall. 
Well, let me let me ask a question of both of you from the point of view of a of a someone who's involved in trying to make the right policy here. We're seeing improvements in many, if not most, states. Uh, the death rate seems to be slowing down. The infection rate seems to be slowing down. Not everywhere. Uh, are those of us who are urging more caution being too conservative? Is this is this are we truly turning a corner on this pandemic, or are we taking a risk by reopening that uh, it will uh, explode and and come back uh, with a second wave? What give give me some help here? I'm I'm trying to make this decision. Uh, is it a is it a are we are we at the end of the tunnel or is it a, a prelude to a, a worse outbreak later in the summer or early fall? Yeah, I mean, I'll have a, a go at that one. Um, any change in you know governance or what we're meant to be doing that leads to more interactions gives the opportunity for the virus to find a new home. So every epidemiologist, public health person is concerned about the reopening of the states and what could this mean? It's different for every state. So a state where you're only getting 100 new cases a day, the risk of reopening is much lower than a state that has 1,500 or 2,000 cases a day. So it is a place-by-place, a state-by-state place, state type of assessment, but there is a great deal of concern that with reducing the restrictions, allowing people to have uh, greater interactions with other people in different types of environments might just lead to an uptick. Um, I think we've got it ingrained in ourselves about not touching our face, um, wearing masks. It may not be the same trajectory as we saw at the beginning of this outbreak, um, but there is a lot of concern that rather than following this trajectory down, reopening is going to either keep it at this slow burn or it's going to allow it to accelerate and this is where with what your state is doing with adding the extra testing will give you that ability to catch it before it turns back to what it was one of the you know senator to, to build on what dr bromage mentioned well one thing is that our um the number of new cases that we record every day has thankfully come down a few weeks ago it was in the 50s per day and we're down to about 20 cases per day now so we've made progress although we'd like to see it go lower one of the questions that that i get asked a lot is have we hit the peak and um one of the interesting things about outbreaks that i've observed over the years is that it's very difficult to know when you're in the thick of an outbreak, whether you've hit the peak. With any outbreak, whether it's influenza, COVID-19, or a foodborne outbreak, it's usually not until well after the outbreak is over that we're able to look back and say, ah, that was the day we hit the peak. It's usually always in retrospect. Uh, for me, it's like, you know, uh, we, we have the sense because of the graphics we use that an outbreak is like climbing a mountain and you get to a peak and that you know when you're at that peak because you look out and you see this vast expanse. But really it's like meandering through the forest with hills that go up and down. And it's not until the end of the hike that you're able to look back and say, that's when I was really at the top point. Well, what, what worries me about the moment we're in now is that is if, if all of the national social distancing and isolation and self-quarantining has enabled us to get to this point where most of the graphs are turning downward, that almost by definition, if we take the foot off the 
the social distancing gas, it's it's going to come back. I mean, there are a lot more. This all started with with just a few cases in the United States. There are a lot more cases out there now, uh, and that that's what worries me. That that the there's a because the social distancing and isolation has worked, it'll it's already creating a sense of frustration and complacency that well this is all this is all over. Look at the graphs. Is that is that a rational way to think about this? Yeah, I I look at this when you. There's some being great work by the genetics team at University of Washington, actually around the world, um, that have estimated that the outbreak that we're seeing in the United States may have been from as few as you know four to maybe ten index cases coming into the country that gave us what we see in New York or what we saw in Washington and California. When you start off with just a handful, it takes some time to get going. But that is the concern of epidemiologists is it's not just a handful now. If we take our boot off the, the neck of this virus and there are hundreds, if not thousands of those cases still in society, it could really start back up quickly. The plus side is, though, we're more aware as a community of what transmission looks like, be it through my post, be it through talking about masks, um, be it the the social engineering we've done in grocery stores and shops the trajectory won't look the same because we've modified society a little bit to adjust how transmissible this virus is but starting high you get huge much faster and that is the concern that a lot of us have just watching this reopening now dr shaw the, the one of the most controversial part of the governor's order and i fully understand it is the 14-day quarantine for people coming into the state. Is there any alternative to that? Could we test everybody at the border or do at least symptoms testing? Or is there are there options? Are you exploring options? Uh, because that's the one that I'm hearing from the tourism industry. They're saying, you know, people just aren't going to come to Maine. And by the way, are Vermont and New Hampshire, are they imposing similar restrictions? So we 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 are in pretty close contact, or at least I'm in close contact with my counterparts in those two states. Similar restrictions exist there, as they do, frankly, in a number of states right now. Um, we're looking at different alternatives, and all options remain on the table right now. Uh, there have been discussions about looking to test people when they come into the state. You can imagine it's challenging. Uh, they would probably have to be on a voluntary basis, which then leads to selection effects of who decides to get tested versus who skips the test. Um, and then there's always the question of what to do. All of that presupposes that we're catching a lot of people by doing so. But uh, it, there's there's a, a window of time between someone, when someone is exposed to the virus and when it's detectable in their body versus when they develop symptoms. And really all a test does is provide you a very brief blurry snapshot of a fast moving train that passed by you about two weeks ago. So we do always have to keep that in mind. So we're looking at other options as well. Uh, there's things like potentially looking at using temperature checks more widely at restaurants and other venues. There's not a perfect solution out there. I think we all have to recognize that. And any solution will be under-inclusive as well as over-inclusive. The question well, now is balancing all of those risks. Well, a question for both of you. What about differential rules for differential parts of the state? There, 
there are counties and small towns in Maine that have seen no cases. Uh, do they need to have the same kind of restrictions that uh, the southern coast does that has, or the Portland area that has many more cases? Is that, a, is that a, an option? I'll jump in uh, on the policy side and then turn it over to Dr. Bromage. You know, in recognition of those uh, different epidemiological facts, Senator, uh, Governor Mills last week moved to allow the, the rural counties in Maine where there have been no local transmission identified, 12 out of the 16 counties. She moved to let them open up on a slightly more accelerated timetable. Retail stores in those counties could open with significant restrictions. Restaurants allow, in, those, in those rural counties can start opening today, outdoor dining, again, with significant restrictions in place that really does recognize uh, and accounts for the fact that it's not one outbreak that's affecting the state or the states, it's multiple simultaneous outbreaks and they each have a different complexion. Yeah, that's really brilliant to hear that, you know, using data to make those decisions on a, you know, as local a level as you possibly can, because a town that has no cases should be able to, um, you know, get their businesses, get their people going again, you know, to some sort of normalcy. The only hesitation is the travel and the tourism side of things that, you know, it only takes one coming in. So, it's not like you can just say, well, there's no restrictions here. I know you didn't say that, but no restrictions here. Um, the concern is that you know, the virus is going to hitchhike on a person and bring it into one of those towns. The more interaction, the more movement you have, and then that town that was doing great, all of a sudden you've got community transmission. So it's a great idea doing it on a local level you know, like that but just the nature of us and our wantingness and willingness to travel does heighten the risk a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, and in Maine, that's a particularly salient issue because we have a population of a million three and in the summer we have many, many millions of, of visitors, uh, many of whom come from what have heretofore been hotspots. And that's the, that's the dilemma that the, the state is facing uh, right now. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back in just a minute with Dr. Nirav Shaw and Aaron Bromich and talking about coronavirus, how it spreads and how to stop it. And welcome back to Inside Maine. I'm Angus King. We're with Dr. Nirav Shaw, who's the head of the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in Maine, and Dr. Aaron Bromage, who is a professor of immunology at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. We're learning a lot, and we're gonna keep hearing from some real live experts. Dr. Shaw, what percentage of our deaths in Maine have been nursing home residents or uh, seniors generally? <laughs> It, it's at least in Maine, it's been on the order of about 40% of all individuals who have passed away have been in long-term care or assisted living facilities. Um, that, that places us lower than many other states. Uh, some states are in the 60 to 70% range. And in the Maine, most states are about at 50%. So we're a bit below that, but still deeply, deeply concerning. We've really redoubled our efforts around nursing homes working with that industry to allow for rapid identification and what's called cohorting of patients with the new expanded testing capacity, 
we'll be able to make sure that nursing home residents who show even the slightest symptoms are tested immediately. But that remains one of our highest, if not really the highest area of concern. Well, you, you mentioned testing. I, my uh, push in, in, in recent months, and in fact, I had an unpleasant uh, confrontation with the vice president about a month ago on the telephone, uh, that there, there isn't enough testing and that we haven't, we haven't geared it up. What, what really bothers me is that I feel like the contract, the, the, the public entered into a contract with the administration back in March and said, okay, we'll social distance, we'll isolate, we'll self-quarantine. In the meantime, you help build the infrastructure that'll get us out of this. And, and it didn't happen. Uh, and that we really aren't in the, we still aren't even close to where we should be in testing. Is that, is that uh, accurate? It is accurate. And we in Maine, Senators, as you know, we stopped, we decided to stop waiting for the federal government. Uh, up until 8 a.m. this morning. That's a sad statement in itself. I, you know, that, that could be the headline of this conversation. Well, we, at 8 a.m. this morning, our laboratory, our main CDC state public health laboratory, uh, went online with a test uh, that is the same as the same type of test we were doing before that looks for the RNA of the virus, but manufactured by a Maine-based company called IDEX, which has a vast ability to provide the chemicals that were in such short supply. Up until this morning, we, we would have our daily laboratory call and we were counting the number of tests that we had left. And as a, as a function of that, had to prioritize testing for certain groups of people. We did a deal with IDEX to more than triple our capacity to allow us to do about 7,000 tests per week just at our laboratory here in Augusta and have a, have a steady supply of those reagents we did that because we needed to be able to expand our testing, and we just decided to go it alone. Dr. Bromage, talk to me about your view of testing as part of the overall strategy. The test, trace, and isolate program is just critical to uh, a successful outcome to this. Um, I'm very proud of my home country, Australia, with the test, trace, and isolate program they put in place. They tested hard, often, and early, they identified everybody's contacts that did test positive, isolated them so that they wouldn't be part of this transmission chain. Every person that we can pull out of society that is infected or potentially infected breaks that chain and stops that exponential, that rapid growth in infections. Having that going is an, a really big piece of stopping this from going back to what it was. In your review of the literature and the experience in Australia and New Zealand, what, what's the right number uh, in, in the US for tests? I've, I've seen everything, well, we're now at two or 300,000 a day. I've seen estimates that it ought to be more like a million and a half to two million to three million a day to really do the kind of testing and contact tracing and isolation that we need. Do you, can you share what you think the right number might be? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be different for depending where you are in the country, but you want to be aiming for somewhere between around about two to 5% of all the tests you do come back positive. Um, any lower than that, you're over testing. Um, any higher than that, you're not capturing enough of the infected people in the community. Um, that would be sort of an aspirational goal of where you would like to be. 10% um, is too high. 
15, 27% that we saw in Boston and we saw in New York is just too high. There's too many people around that you're just missing um, because you're not testing enough. So the range of, you know, two to 5% would be a really good aspirational goal to get to. So as the numbers come up, you've got to have more tests available. But if, um, you know, the numbers of infected people drop down, you can slow down a little bit on testing. Um, that's the sort of numbers that I see the, the epidemiologists really say this is a good range to be in. Senator, if I, if I may, I would be remiss if I didn't note that, at least here in Maine, as of this weekend, our overall positivity rate has been about 5.9%. So we're, we're not there yet. We do hope with this expanded capacity, we can get into the, the range that Dr. Bromage mentions. Our goal, my goal for the state of Maine is to be at 2%, which is what South Korea achieved. And we've all, we've all read quite a bit about their success in really taking a hammer to this thing. And so our goal is to get down to 2%, but most definitely below 5% very soon. Well, that, the expansion uh, is, is a, a, an astonishing, astonishingly good news for Maine, and uh, it's great that it was worked out with a, with a Maine company, uh, right, you know, that, that stepped up. Uh, so I think that's, that's a great opportunity for us. Uh, Dr. Bromwich, do you see uh, a, a resurgence in the fall? Is there going to be a second wave? I, I realize that's an impossible question, but... Uh, give me some parameters on that question. Yeah, I mean, we there's this question that is going around with um, you know public health people and epidemiologists about the the concept of seasonal forcing. Will summer have an effect on this, this virus's transmission? We see that with influenza. We see that with other coronaviruses. That you know, spending more time outdoors improves vitamin D levels. Um, general health, the interactions drop down, the virus doesn't survive in the environment for as long um, when you've got this warmer, more humid weather. So I, I am hopeful that with the increased testing and the tracing programs that we're going to see a good summer. It's not going to be what it looks like now. But I do have worries that when we start to head back inside again, when we're starting to see the typical increase in November of influenza cases and just general colds, that that brings back the conditions that are conducive for this thing just to take off again. I'd hate to get into talking about models because everyone talks about the models being wrong. They're always perfect after the case. They're only as predictive as the best data that you put in. But I do have concerns that when we come around to October, November, December, all the conditions are still in play for this to start again. Um, people that are infected, a susceptible um, you know, population of people, not many people have seen the virus yet, and a virus with high transmittability, you know, uh, it does keep me worried. A friend of mine told me that the, the outcome of this will be the opposite of what we expect. If we think it's going to be terrible and act accordingly, it won't be so bad. And if we think it's going to go away and act accordingly, it's going to get bad. I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I don't think it matters what we think. I mean, it's going to do what it does based on the biology. 
I really just, I hope that we can engineer our way into lowering how easily this spreads. Be aware that while it may not affect us personally, it certainly affects members of our community drastically. Um, and, you know, just changes that we all make should lead things to be better. Um, if we go back to doing what we were doing in December, January, February, it, it, it doesn't bode well uh, for what the future looks like with this. Well, that's my point. My point isn't that what we think is going to affect it. It's how we act based upon what we think. Yep. It's our behavior. It re the trajectory of this outbreak is 100% based on our behavior and our buy-in as a community of this is important, this is serious, let's adjust accordingly. And that can have a major, major effect on what this looks like. Uh, we, I, I don't want to uh, go off too, uh, too far in, on a tangent, but I was thinking about an athletic event where you have 100,000 people packed into a stadium yelling at the top of their lungs. That's probably the worst possible setting you could you could have, as I because I understand that even singing and and loud talking uh, adds to the transmission. Doctor Shaw, is that is that the case? It sounds like it's going to be a while before we're down back there in uh, in uh, the Patriot Stadium uh, down. In Fox. So you I think you're you're right on the epidemiology as well as on the sociology. Um, it, there have been a number of papers published. Uh, both looking at tightly packed events. That all, I think, makes good sense. But there have also been some interesting uh, papers and, and, um, and other uh, uh, reports that have come out about things like working out at a gym. Uh, there was just an article that was published in one of the journals that the US CDC runs about people who seem to have gotten sick uh, from a really high intensity workout class in South Korea. Many, many folks may have heard about um, uh, an outbreak that seems to have started with choir practice. So I think the sociological question is, is what's going to come back the way it used to be and what's not going to come back for the short term or perhaps even for the longer term? Um, and what's, how are folks going to accommodate or adapt to some of those changes? I think about this every day. Every time I meet somebody new, no one shakes hands anymore. Is that going to come back or are the handshakes gone? Uh, certainly large sporting events. Not clear when, even if it were allowable from a public health standpoint, where we thought the risk level of the virus had dropped, will people be psychologically and behaviorally ready to go back to an event like that? It's going to be very interesting. Well, one of those changes is, is a, a, a profound economic change, and that is all the people that are working from home. Uh, I'm hearing of companies that are saying, why do we need these big expensive buildings and paying heat and light when we found that people can work very effectively from home. And by the way, imagine how much worse the economic impact of this would be if we didn't have the ability for so many people to work at home. We would have probably twice or three times the number of people unemployed. Uh, I know in Maine, there's some major businesses with two or 3,000 people. 98% of them are working from home and, uh, and, and able to do that. I think that's going to be a change that we see. And it's one that ironically may end up helping Maine because uh, we've got wonderful people. And if, if we can get good broadband, then we can uh, expand those uh, opportunities. Well, I really appreciate your uh, sharing these uh, insights with us. Uh, Dr. Shaw, I want to put you on the, on the spot. I have a friend who's very nervous about going out, about going to the store, doing anything. Give, give me uh, your you know, sort of top three or four pieces of advice for practical 
daily life for dealing dealing with this. So, Senator, given that we're in Maine and a state with the oldest average population, if your friend is older and they happen to have any type of pre-existing health conditions, uh, the advice I give to my, my mother, who, who lives with us here in Maine, is that she's probably going to have to stay inside for a while. That's not practicable for everybody. So we've also helped, um, maybe not my mother, but my in-laws, who live in another state, to get used to ordering groceries on online apps. So those are, I think, going to be a new reality for a lot of folks. But if, if going outside is essential, what I've recommended to other friends and family members is to try to minimize all contact. Go to grocery stores now. Many of them have hours specifically for senior citizens. Uh, but if at all possible, going during, during, go during the least crowded time. Minimize interactions with folks. Have your grocery list. Stick to it. Try to go in and get out in as short of time as possible. Dr. Bromage, your top three tips. Yeah, just be armed with the best knowledge, knowing that in closed spaces with lots of people um, and lots of noise where people have to talk more loudly are your risk areas. So just be aware of those environments. I was talking to my kids about this. It's We've taught them how to cross the road. They know the rules of crossing the road. Look left, look right, look left. People don't know the rules with an outbreak or with a you know contagious disease around. And so it's giving people those rules. Look at your environment, assess the environment. And if it seems like there's going to be a lot of interactions um, with people, then maybe remove yourself from that environment or spend like a lower amount of time in that particular situation. So just assess risk and adjust your behavior based on it. Yeah, I'll tell you, Aaron, you don't know this. I used to be the governor of Maine. I did that. (laughs) I've never known of a, I've never seen a governor have to make as many really hard, hard, heartbreaking decisions uh, as, as is in this case, because there's no, there's no good, easy way to handle this. Well, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've been very impressed about with pretty much the entire New England response has been that the governors have um, made the decisions based on the data, not based on the optics. And you know, I can see how much they're getting hammered, be it Ramondo, be it Governor Baker, um, but they're letting the data dictate the policy at the potentially the expense of their career in politics. And I think that takes a really brave really brave leader to put that first because i'm not seeing that around the country i'm seeing it um there's other other things that are weighing on the mind of decisions rather than the biology of what's going on so it's i'm glad i'm living where i'm living right now if i was going to be in the u.s because i think the new england group of governors are making great decisions yeah governor mills is certainly in that category yeah and tough decisions too i mean it's i cannot possibly imagine what's being thrown at them from all the different directions. And it's not just the biology, there's the, the economy, there's you know, policy, it's incredible. And so I, I'm glad I am not in that position. Well, I wanna thank both of you for your time today and for your really valuable insights. This has been fascinating. And uh, you all are in a very important position because uh, people who are making policy and are making decisions about laws and executive orders are certainly trying to pay as close attention to the work that you're doing 
as, as we possibly can and to make the decisions that will really meet the needs of our constituents and keep them safe, as well as employed, which is uh, part of the consideration that we have to, we have to weigh. But uh, what you're doing is so important. And again, I want to thank both of you, Dr. Shaw, for your work in Maine and Dr. Bromage for your good work around the country and the clear uh, guidance that you've given to all of us as we approach uh, this terrible uh, situation, which uh, hopefully will soon be behind us. Thank you both for your time and thank you for joining us on Inside Maine. This is Angus King. Have a great day.